Well, it is an honor to be here. Uh, I, I, I am just move, I am just moving. <laughs> They're all down there. Go over. Go over. Uh, you checked my Twitter account, and that may have been the last time I put anything on Twitter. I, I some years ago decided um, that uh, social media. Uh, I would have others track it for me. And, uh, but I will tell you that I think I, may, I had the first Twitter account of anybody I know. Uh, I started out right from the very beginning when their, their tagline was, join Twitter, Twitter and avoid having to answer the question your friends ask, what are you doing? And uh, that, was, that was how they marketed back uh, in the early days. But anyway... It's good to be here, uh, Elder. Our Dr. Um, Loxton said that I was a double graduate of Andrews. I tried for three, but when I went to work at Natty, they told me I had to leave and go somewhere else because it didn't look good to have too many degrees from the same institution. They had too many others with that, so I, I went elsewhere. But uh, my wife is also a double graduate, and our our son-in-law is a graduate, and our daughter is a graduate, and our son is a graduate, all of Andrews University, and we owe a great deal to this institution. You know that the tagline for Andrews University is, Seek Knowledge, Affirm Faith, and Change the World. And I wanted to double-check, make sure that I had that verbiage exactly right, so I went on the website, and right there on the opening page of the Andrews website, it says, indeed, world changers made here. That's quite a claim. World changers made here. And then it goes on to say, start a club on campus, share a smile, take a mission trip, invent a gadget. No matter what being a world changer looks like for you, we are dedicated to helping you achieve it. I want to talk to you a little bit about world changing here today. Truth is that most of us won't leave a massive legacy when we pass off this earth. Not one that's visible, not one that will be publicly acknowledged from shore to shining shore. But we can make an impact. In the first service, I, I, I mentioned uh, my predecessor in the Illinois Conference. Wayne Coulter was his name. He was president there for a number of years. And when he was retiring, I said to him, Wayne, we're going to miss you when you retire. And he said, Ken, take a bucket of water, stick your hand in it, pull it out real fast, and the hole that remains represents how long people will remember me when I'm gone. <laughs> and I think there's some truth to that. Most of us pass along. I, I experienced it myself. served 21 years in the Illinois Conference. And and uh, when I took the position at the North American Division, I said, well, it's not fair to my successor for me to be too available to the members here who love me so much and have, have you know, shared so much with me. And we've, we've had this great bond of experience together. And so I said, when I move, I'm going to change my phone number, the same one I'd had for, since 1992, my, my, my cell number. It started out as a mobile number. And... Uh, so I decided I was going to change that, and I got to the division, and a week went by, and two weeks, and three weeks, and I hadn't heard from anybody. So I still have my phone. 
And then there's Johnny Barnes. Do you know Johnny Barnes? Uh, you cannot spend much time in, in Bermuda, or at least especially in years gone by, without hearing something about Johnny Barnes. Johnny Barnes uh, is known far and wide because he decided decades ago that he was going to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go park himself on an intersection in downtown Ham- or near downtown Hamilton, and uh, he was go- just going to catch the people going to their flights, the tourists going to their flights, or maybe returning to their ships, people on their way to work, and he was just going to be there on that corner and wave to them, say, good morning, I love you, he would say, God loves you, he'd blow kisses to them, and he became an institution there on that island because of this, this ministry that he did for decades. In fact, as he was getting up in years, they decided to memorialize him. And you go to the place where he w- would uh, greet people for so many years, and there is a bronze statue of him. A, a documentary has been done on him, and I, it was my privilege to represent the North American Division at his funeral a few years ago. The, uh, the uh, heads of the, the, the leaders of this the island of Bermuda were there and presented at his funeral and, and shared their memories and, and others. They, I mean, they celebrated this man. And uh, when it came time to carry the casket to the cemetery, crowds lined the streets and rode out to the cemetery as they said goodbye to this man who had become so much a part of their life and who they had cherished hearing those words from. I love you. God loves you any time they wanted to hear. It's it's an amazing story. There's so much more that could be told. I went out there one morning to visit this man. He was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, an elder in in his congregation, a Sabbath school teacher. Um, I went to the corner to visit him, and I had to wait my turn because there were tourists there waiting to talk to him. And one lady said to me with tears in her eyes, she said, if I had my choice of visiting with any celebrity in the world or with Johnny Barnes, it would be Johnny Barnes because when I meet with him, he prays with me and I just go away feeling so good about my experience with Johnny Barnes. So when my turn came, I stepped up to Johnny. We had a nice visit and and I said to him, Johnny, how can you be doing this same thing for decades out here on the street corner just waving, kissing, blowing kisses to people and saying, I love you. How, what, what motivates you? What drives you to, to be so consistent and persistent in this? And he said this to me. He says, he didn't really answer my question directly. He just said, God has something for everyone to do. God has something for everyone to do. It, when You may throw a rock into the pond or you may throw a tiny pebble, but you will all make a ripple if you're doing what God calls you to do. Um, I think one of the stories that is one of my favorite in the Bible is the story of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, you may turn with me to Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And we read there this opening statement about, in his words, um, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire." 
In the, in the narrative, for months, Nehemiah grieves over that report. He, 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 it seems that God planted a vision in his mind at that point, but how in the world was it going to be accomplished? He's haunted by this vision of rebuilt walls around the city of Jerusalem, making it really a city. He wonders what he can do. Sorrows over the condition. There had been starts and stops over the years trying to get it. There had been political infighting over the, over the whole establishment of Jerusalem again. Now, God plants in Nehemiah's mind, this cupbearer of the king, this, this leader in the nation, foreign nation, plants in his mind this idea of seeing the city restored, the walls built. But what can he do? He's just one person. Even though he's got status in his adopted city, he, he wonders what he can do. I became president of the Illinois Conference two months after 9-11. It was an amazing time. Uh, we were very serious if, as, as a nation, if you recall. Some of you weren't born then, but it was an amazing time. And uh, not too long after I became president, we took some friends to the Hancock Building, downtown Chicago, just a little tourist thing, and we went up to the observation deck, and while they looked out over the lake and admired the beauty of the day, I was at another corner looking out over the city. 9.6 million people live in that metro area. And you, from, from even from the high level of that observation deck, you cannot see the end of the city. And I thought to myself, we say we have a special message. We have a distinctive message that we're called to give as a church, as a movement. But here, look at that. 9.6 million people. It's audacious to think that we can go to just this one city. But look at all the many others across the country and around the world. It's an amazing thing. And yet God has planted in the hearts of people throughout the decades that this movement has been in existence, this idea of carrying a distinctive message for the end times to our world. So I feel like, like I know a little bit about how Nehemiah felt as he looked out over, or he thought in his mind's eye, looked out over the city of Jerusalem and saw what needed to be done and, and wondered how in the world he, one person, could make a difference. He goes on about doing his duties. He serves the king, and one day as he goes in before the king, uh, his mask slips, and the king sees through the fake smile that's been on his face all those weeks. The king sees the sorrow, the sadness, maybe even confusion that Nehemiah had, and he asks him, what's the problem? Now, you may think that's very empathetic on the part of the king, but I'm sure it struck fear into the heart of Nehemiah when he heard it, because it was not a good thing. In fact, it could be punishable by death to appear before the king with a sad countenance. So maybe his heart stopped for a moment, but the king did ask him, what's up, Nehemiah? What's, what's going on in your head? What's, what's on your mind? Why the sad face? And so he, Nehemiah humbly begins to relate to Artaxerxes, his sadness, the reason for it. It's my hometown. It's, it's in ruins. The gates are burned down. 
And to his amazement, Artaxerxes, the king, asks him, what can I do to help? <laughs> Nehemiah, emboldened now, he, he asks for a leave of absence to go and, from the king's court and go back and, 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 and see what he can do to, to get these walls restored and the, the, bitty, the, the, the city acting like a city again. And the king quickly grants him that leave of absence and says, what more do you need? And, he, and then Nehemiah says, well, we really need workmen and, and we, need, we need materials. And the king says, you got them. And he says, by the way, here, you're going to be traveling through some dangerous areas. Here is a letter of safe passage from, from me telling people that they should let you through without any troubles. And, and, and by the way, you're traveling with this group. You're going to need some bodyguards. And so he gives him bodyguards and Nehemiah sets about putting together this great uh, Maranatha trip. <laughs> he, he's, he's going off to rebuild the, the walls of God's city. I don't think they snuck into town if they had all those workmen and all those resor- all of those materials and bodyguards. It must have been quite a caravan that showed up. But, but Nehemiah, when he got there, he didn't speak up right away. He, he left it alone. He, 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 he just hung out for several days, and then one night he gathers together his closest confidants, and together they go out, and they do, in the middle of the night, they do a survey, walk around the circumference of the city, and it's worse than they had ever imagined. I had a, I had a dream once. I wanted a, I wanted a sports car, a convertible. I, wa- I wanted it to be red. And so I started shopping, or this is years ago. I said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shop around, see if I can find, I'm going to find me my little car that I can run around in. It's going to be wonderful. And so I started looking around at red convertible sports cars, and I discovered they all had one thing in common, and that was they were all out of my price range. But yet, I still had the dream. And so as I was thinking, what can I do? How can I fulfill this dream? I remembered that my brother-in-law, who was quite a bit younger than I, he, uh, he had an old Fiat Spider, And it was parked out behind my in-law's house. I said, you know, for a few thousand dollars, I can take that car out and, and fix it up. And it won't be my, exactly my dream car, but, but it will be a... And it was red already. And I said, it, 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 you know, I have my convertible sports car. So the next time we got to, the, to visit my in-laws, my wife went quickly into the house, and I went quickly to the backyard where the car was, and, and I, there I was covered with a tarp, and I pulled the tarp back and realized that the tarp had holes in it. And over the years that it had been parked back there, rain had gotten down, and the, the upholstery was rotted, the dash was cracked, and the, floor, the floorboards were in tatters. There were holes through the fenders. It was a mess. And I threw the tarp back over it, and it sat there for many, many, many more years, rusting and decaying away. My dream died right there in the backyard of my in-laws. <laughs> never, never did get in my car. My dream died. The difference, though, between my dream and Nehemiah's dream is mine was a selfish, ambitious dream. Nehemiah had a dream He had a vision, he had a goal that was planted in his head by God through the Holy Spirit. He believed that God was calling him to do this. And so no matter 
how crumbled down the walls were, no matter how burnt the gates were or how much rubble there was, in all of that mess, Nehemiah could still picture those walls upright, the gates restored, and, and, and they're staffed with guards. So he returns to his place where he's staying. The next day, Nehemiah summons the leading people of the city and asks and tells them about the awful condition of their city. I've been out. I've looked around. They said, well, you're not telling us anything we don't already know. We live here. We know how bad it is. But then he surprised them. In all seriousness, he looked them in the eyes earnestly and said, let's rebuild it. Immediately, questions came up. Somebody asked the question, can we do it legally? Because that question always comes up. Can we do it legally? And Nehemiah says, we can. I have permission from the king. Do we have enough workers to get it? Yes, the king has given us workers, and the king has supplied us with materials. With every question they raised and every answer that he gave, conviction arises in their hearts, and finally they respond, let us rise up and build. It's recorded there in the book of Nehemiah. His optimism, his vision are contagious and the people are ready to go. And so the, or, the, 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 the project begins. The locals all set to work on that part of the wall that's closest to where they live. Others from outlying villages come in and fill in the gaps. Everyone pitches in and does what he or she can do, except for one group, the, the nobles of the Tekoites. These guys, they sat back and said, oh, I can't be done. It's a waste of time. We've been trying this. We've tried this before. It's too hard. But overall, the people didn't listen to them. They listened to Nehemiah. They bought into the vision, and off they ran. Now, here's a principle. A principle is true in every setting, in every time. It's universal. And here's the principle. Where there is a God-given vision, opposition will arise. You can count on it. If, if you have a vision that you're pursuing and there's not opposition to it, you've got to stop and question whether God is in it. Because we're in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. And, and, and whenever God has somebody who's picked up the mantle with, of a vision, there's going to be opposition to it. The enemy will see to that. And that was the case here with Nehemiah. The opposition came from the Samaritans, some of the heathen nations around Jerusalem, motivated by jealousy, fearful that Judea would overshadow them once more as a political power in, in that part of Palestine. And so the ridicule, I mean, the opposition began, began with ridicule. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says there, But it, it so happened when Sanballat, he's one of the, uh, the leaders of the other nations, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Mockery and ridicule. And it did nothing to deter Nehemiah and his people. And so the, the opposition continues on. There was a threat of attack. 
Um, they said, we're, we're, we'll, we'll go in, we'll watch out, Nehemiah, we're coming after you. And uh, Nehemiah countered this opposition with prayer, and he set a watch, and they continued to work. Then, then there were the complainers. Some said, everyone's getting tired, and there's too much rubble in our way, and the warrior said, our enemies are going to attack, and we'll all be killed. How did Nehemiah deal with this? He set guards up. He said, he had those who could work with one hand and carry a sword with the other. He had others who worked with both hands but carried a sword at their side. He had even others who uh, were trumpeters on the, on the walls to sound an alarm, a warning, should the enemy actually attack. He did all that he could to protect against the attack, and it never came. The bullies, when they saw that the Jewish people were prepared to, to defy them, to stand up against them, they backed off and they never attacked. They were ready to resist. They didn't actually have to because the people never, the enemy never showed up. The workers doubled their efforts so as to get the job done. The Bible says they worked by day, they guarded by night. There were even many who, who were set in such a constant state of alert that they slept in their clothes, must have been for days on end. And then there was opposition through compromise. Sam Ballot and Tobiah sent another message to Nehemiah, Nehemiah and said, You know, Nehemiah, this has gone on long enough. Why don't you come on down, uh, come on down and see us, and we'll work things out. We'll 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 sit down and and just you know plow through the issues, and and we'll come to some uh, understanding. And Nehemiah realized right away that they sought only to lure him away from his work for evil purposes, and he sent back this message. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times the enemy sent that message, come down here and meet with us. And four times Nehemiah responded by saying, no way. I'm here. I'm focused on my work. We've got things to do. And so they turned then to slander. They told terrible things about Nehemiah and and others. But he refused to be diverted from the mission by their lies. He kept his attention on the vision. And then the opposition through treachery. You know, Shemaiah, he was one of Nehemiah's inner... I love these names, by the way. It's kind of fun just to say them. Shemaiah. He, he, he was one of the inner circle. And the enemy bribed him to go in and talk to Nehemiah to persuade him to go into hiding in the temple, the sanctuary, for his own personal safety. And Nehemiah answered and said, should such a man as I flee, I will not go in. I will not give up. I will not go in. The result was that the wall was finished in record time. After all those years of sitting there in rubble, they finished it, it says in chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of this. And all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Amen. That's an amazing story. How was it completed in such a short time? By the way, just as an aside, chapter 5 is interesting too. Nehemiah was on a mission. He was focused. He was, he was ready to get that job done. He had a mission of building the city of God. 
But in chapter 5, he breaks away. This is an aside. This isn't part of the sermon. Uh, it shouldn't count on my time either. But he, um, in chapter 5, he, he addresses some social issues in his time. There was some, some injustice that was going on in, in, in the nation. And he addressed those issues. And I, I would just say today, as an aside, that there are those who believe that the church should be so focused on evangelism and mission as it's been historically defined that we don't have time to deal with social issues. I think the church is strong enough and smart enough and resourced enough to be able to walk and chew, chew gum at the same time. We can address social injustices and not abandon the mission that we have of preparing a people to meet Jesus. In fact, I don't, I'm not sure we can prepare a people to meet Jesus and not address injustice in our world. That's an aside. That's just an aside. Nehemiah and his people completed their task. They fulfilled the vision because they kept their eyes on the goal. They would not be distracted. They prayed for victory and accomplishment. They, they kept a constant vigil as they worked in one accord. And the same determination that we see in Nehemiah shows up in others in Scripture. Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Jeremiah wrote uh, the word, these words, Thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command you, you shall speak. Amos was told, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Jesus said, As the Father sent me, even so send I you. Paul wrote, be not, he, he heard these words, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. John wrote, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a great voice saying, What thou seest, write. You and I also have a divinely appointed task. That's what we're getting to. We have a divinely appointed. We're called to build the walls of spiritual Jerusalem. To build the city of God, to proclaim the gospel, the good news that God is love, that Jesus died for lost mankind, that he's coming back very soon for his people. To proclaim a warning to lost mankind. We're charged with a vision to, to build the community of faith ready to meet Jesus when he comes. Have you caught that vision? The vision of a body of believers who are more concerned with service than they are with self-service. The vision of restoring the whole image of God in fallen men and women. The vision of people, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, educated and illiterate, cultured and uncultured, living together in harmony and mutual respect. Bound together by the gospel. Bound together by a common mission. The vision of a finished work. The vision of eternal life with God and the holy angels. Have you caught that vision? Have you caught that vision? Here I go on another aside, but I think I've got time to do it. We took our pastors to Israel uh, years ago from the Illinois conference, and we went to the tomb, the garden tomb on Sabbath. Uh, it's one of the several places that claims to be where Jesus was buried. This garden tomb is probably the least likely, but it, I like it best because it most closely resembles the uh, pictures in Uncle Arthur's bed, uh, Bible story books. 
But after we, after we had visited the tomb, they have places set up there where you can go and have communion service. And we went there, and we, uh, we celebrated communion together. And after we were done, after we were done, we, began, we sang the, the song, We Have This Hope, you know, the international anthem of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We sang that, and we sang it with gusto, and then we made our way to, towards the gate to get back on our bus, and as we're walking along, a group came up to us, and they said, was that you singing that song? And we said, yeah, that was us singing that song. And they said, are you Seventh-day Adventists? And we said, yeah, we're Seventh-day Adventists. They said, so are we, we're from Brazil. And we walked along together. And as we were walking along together, another group comes up to us, and they said, was that you singing that song? Yeah, that's what I was are you Seventh-day Adventists? Yes, we're Seventh-day Adventists. They said, so are we. We're from Great Britain. And they joined our group. And, and together, these three groups from very different parts of the world, we walked along together towards the gate, bound together by a vision, by a vision of a finished work, of a people being prepared to meet Jesus when he comes. I told that story one time and a lady came up to me afterwards. She said, I, I'm visiting today. And she said, I'm, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. And I just want you to know that, you know, there are other Christians out there who also have hope and, and vision and, and want to see Jesus come. And I said, sister, I know that. I know that. I know that anybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior has that hope and has that, has that, that desire to be with him. And I said, so I, I recognize that. But we have the song, I said. <laughs> uh. Have you caught the vision? I, I see people sold out to all kinds of visions. To run a little faster. To get a few more cases in their portfolio. But we have an eternal, eternal mission with an eternal consequence. And I want to tell you that if you grab hold of that vision and you run with it, if you have a vision for a particular piece of that large puzzle that has to do with preparing a people for the end time, you can be sure that once you do, you... You will face opposition. Anyone today who chooses to live by his or her convictions, anyone today who catches a vision of what the church could be can expect to be criticized, harassed, and mocked. And I don't mean from outside. It can happen from inside too. But don't worry about it. Keep your eyes on the goal. You have a vision of a finished work and, and being in heaven with Jesus Christ. Anyone today who catches the vision of building the walls of God's kingdom can expect serious attacks against their character, their integrity, their motives by those who are motivated by the enemy of God. But don't worry about it. Never mind. You know the truth. Just keep your eyes on the goal. Keep moving forward. Nehemiah's enemies tried to woo him from the protection of the city. And they meant him no good. One writer says, Nehemiah well knew that all the pretended courtesy was but dross upon dirt, a fair glove drawn upon a foul hand, a cunning collusion to undo him. He therefore kept aloof. Beware when the enemy flatters you. Don't let yourself be caught with your guard down. And above all, don't lose sight of the goal. We have a mission 
to expand the kingdom, to, to, to build spiritual Jerusalem in preparation for the return of Jesus Christ. When the walls were in place, the enemy couldn't hinder by violence, and so they changed their tactics from force to fraud and began to work from within. That probably was the most difficult challenge of all. The group that came to Nehemiah and appealed to him to take refuge in the temple. You're our, you're our leader. We've, you've, we've got to protect you. Go hide out where, where they can't get to you because if, if they get you, the whole movement is over. Today, men and women are tempted to hide out. They, they avoid speaking out. Let me say we avoid speaking out. We won't express the truth as we know it. We won't rock the boat. We won't allow ourselves to do anything but maintain the status quo to be safe. We must speak out as Nehemiah and say, should such a man or such a person as I flee, that is flee from the task of achieving the vision of a prepared people to meet Jesus when he comes, fully restored into the image of God, The Jewish historian Josephus says of Nehemiah, he was a man of kind and just nature and most anxious to serve his countrymen, and he left the walls of Jerusalem as his eternal monument. I want to say that we're not all going to be Nehemiahs. We're not going to have our story recorded in the Bible. But we can make an impact. We can make a difference. We can. The vision can be met. We can play our part in the vision being met, the goal being reached, as we, like Nehemiah, keep our eyes on the goal, as we allow nothing to distract us. So we pray for victory. So we pray for victory. Keep a constant vigil against the enemy. And most of all, Recognize that this isn't our work, it's the work of the Lord. As Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, you, you also have taken up the mantle to participate in this vision, this dream, this mission. And although you may not be Nehemiah-sized, you do make a difference. You can be a world changer. Every pebble has a ripple. Every pebble. So my prayer for myself and for you today is that we make ourselves available to the call of God to accomplish His vision and that indeed, together, we can be world changers.